Standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Heavenly Father, we come before you graciously thanking you for all that you have done for us. And Father, we thank you so much for the sure word that you've given to us. And Father, we thank you for all three uh, witnesses that you have given to us as well, that we may have a sure foundation. And Father, as we look at this uh, in this video about how all three witnesses harmonize beautifully together, Father, I pray that you will um, touch my lips with a call from off your altar, that I may present your thoughts here today through my words and my body language and my tone of voice. And Lord, I pray that you will uh, touch the eyes and ears of those watching and listening that they may hear your thoughts today and not mine. Father, I pray for uh, the outpouring of your spirit. I pray for your leading and your guidance. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at all three witnesses, the true triunity. And if you have not watched the other videos, then, then I would highly recommend you go back and watch these other videos first because uh, this is really not going into any of the information that I've gone into so far. Really, all this is is just kind of summing things up and putting together not the information that I've, that I've already looked at, that we've already looked at, but simply putting the information together, showing how they line up beautifully by taking statements from the Bible, from all three witnesses, and putting them together and showing the beautiful harmony. Uh, but as a quick review, for those of you who may have been a while since you saw the others, uh, as a quick review, the witness number one is the Bible, and not just any Bible, but the Reformation Bible. Witness number two is the writings of Ellen White, and primarily, not just any writings, but primarily uh, the published works of Ellen White. Again, not saying there's anything wrong with the others, but that's what she said, the published works. And witness number three was the pioneers, the Advent movement, and more specifically, the fundamental principles and where they all agree on those things. So with that, we're going to go ahead and dive into uh, the true triunity. And by true triunity, I want to show you what I mean by true triunity, because there is a false triunity of witnesses. And we see that in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. And it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, there are three listed, so people will often say that this is the false trinity. Uh, in other words, false godhead trinity. But that's not what these three are. These three are actually witnesses. They're not, they're not trying to be gods. They're witnessing to their god which of course is the false God. But these three are not a false trinity as in false God. They are three false witnesses. And that is how they compare. And you see in Revelation 19, 20, and it says, and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. So, Again, people oftentimes refer to these as the three, uh, the, the false trinity, but that's not what they are. They don't parallel God. They're not trying to parallel the Godhead. 
they are paralleling the witnesses that God has given. So they are the false witnesses, and God has given, given a true triunity of witnesses. And so that's what we're going to look at now. How all three of these witnesses uplift and point to each other. And how they all three harmonize beautifully together on all, the, all of the topics. So let's look at an example of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And let's see what the three witnesses have to say on this topic. So we'll look at what the Bible says on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and we're going to break the Holy Spirit down into two sections, the, the who and the what aspect of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see what the second witness has to say on the Father, the Son, the who, what aspect, and the what aspect of the Holy Spirit. And then we will look and, and see what the pioneers have to say on those three things. And I, I'm trying to compress this. And again, this, this is not an expose on this topic by any means. And so I am leaving a lot of information out here in order to try to keep this video short. And so I'm not going into all of the details by any means. But let's let, look... Um, and see what the Bible has to say about the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6 says, But to us there is but one God. And who is that one God? The Father, of whom are all things, and we in him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So here the word of God in the Bible, the spirit of prophecy is found in the Bible, is contrasting the one God, which is the Father, with the one Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it have to say about the Son? Well, we go to John chapter 3 and verse 16. We'll just use this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yet again, there is a contrast between the Father, who is the one God I've spoken of in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. We've got the contrast between the Father and the Son, but here in this verse we have more detail about the son and when we look in the greek it's it's more specific the only genetic the monogeneous the only genetic son of god so jesus isn't just any son he is the only genetic son of god and we will see witness number two go into greater detail on that but let's look at what the the bible has to say the spirit of prophecy is found in the bible has to say about the who aspect of the holy spirit now and we'll go to John chapter 14, verses 17 to 18. And here it says, the spirit of truth. Now the word truth is, in the Greek, it's aletheia, the spirit of aletheia. Now who is aletheia? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 and verse 6, he says that he is the way, the aletheia, and the life. So he is the aletheia. So the spirit of aletheia here is the spirit of Jesus, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, present tense, and shall be in you, future tense. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. This is of utmost importance. I realize I'm not trying to go into an expose, but I do want to make this point that in John 14:17, whoever Jesus is speaking of is the one that was dwelling with them right then. And when you compare that with John 7:39, you find that it was not the Holy Spirit. So, who was it that was dwelling with them right then? It was Jesus. And it was Jesus that was with dwelling with them. 
and would be in them future tense. And the second witness goes into greater detail on that also, being cumbered with humanity, which we will look at. Um, but this is why the, the word of God, uh, as found in the Bible, says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Because it was Jesus with them at that point, but he would be in them future tense. And this is why Jesus said in verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless or, or orphan orphans. I will come to you. Jesus didn't say he was going to send someone else to them. Jesus said that he would come to them. So I hope that is clear. Let's look at the what aspect now of the Holy Spirit just really, really quickly. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, the word of the Lord says, for who hath directed, or that word is comprehended, the spirit of the Lord, the ruach of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him. Now, Paul quotes that verse in Romans chapter 11 and verse 34, but he alters it just a little bit. Why? I will touch on that in just a moment. Romans 11:34. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, the, the noose of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Now, Paul pretty almost perfectly quotes uh, Isaiah 40:13 in Romans 11:34. He does a very wonderful job of translating from Hebrew to Greek there. But there's one thing that he did not translate the same. And that was ruach in uh, um, Isaiah 40, 13. He did not translate that to the Greek pneuma. Instead, he translated it specifically to the Greek nous, meaning mind. Why did he do this? Well, because Paul was not a triunitarian. If he understood that the Holy Spirit was God, the Holy Spirit, then then he really uh, botched his translation. But friends, Paul didn't botch his translation. Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He understood the word spirit, the ruach and the pneuma to be an extremely broad understanding. That word is a very large umbrella word that covers a lot of different things. So he wanted to narrow that down uh, for Isaiah 40:13, so that we knew very, very clearly what Isaiah 40:13 was talking about. It was not talking about another individual. It was not talking about God, the Holy Spirit. It was not talking about angels. It was not talking about any of these things. Friends, he wanted us to understand that Isaiah 40:13 was referring to the mind of God. Simple as that. Paul did not understand it as a triunity of any sort. In fact, he says in Acts 24, 14, that he worships the God of his fathers. He, you can call him a heretic until you're blue in the face, he says, in essence. But he's going to worship, and he does worship the God of his fathers, as found in the law and in the prophets, or in the Old Testaments. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God that he worshiped as his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that was kind of looking at a, a what, and we'll look at John 6.63 here also, and see that the Holy Spirit is not a who in these verses, but the Holy Spirit is a what. It is the spirit that quickeneth or gives life. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So we see a parallel statement there. It is the spirit that gives life, and then Jesus says, the words that I speak, they give life. They are life. And words are not a who, they're not an individual, they're a what, they're an it's. 
So now let's look at the second witness. Uh, and again, I realize this is, this is not intended to be an expose. So uh, friends, if this is uh, the first time you're being, uh, you're, you're seeing this information, then go to phm.org or go to the, the YouTube site, PHM's YouTube site, and there is lots of information here. So I'm not going to try to rebuild the wheel. I'm simply showing how all three witnesses harmonize beautifully. So let's look at the second witness and what she has to say about the Father or what Jesus has to say about the Father through Ellen White in a published work here. Review and Herald, July 9, 1895, paragraph 13. The eternal Father, the unchangeable one, so it is the unchangeable one is the eternal Father, gave his only begotten Son. So the eternal, unchangeable one is not the Son. She is contrasting the two very clearly. The gave his only begotten Son, tore from his bosom him who was made in the express image of his person and sent him down to earth to reveal how greatly he loved mankind. And so now we'll look at, um, there was a lot of information there, by the way, on both the Father and the Son. Um, but now we're going to look at uh, more detail on the Son now. In the Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895, paragraph 3, she says, A complete offering has been made for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now she's quoting John 3.16, but she doesn't leave it there. She wants to clarify how he is the only begotten son, because this has been an issue. How is Jesus the only begotten son? There's so many people that say, well, he was the only begotten son when he came to this earth. But what does the second witness say? She clarifies how he is the only begotten son. She says, not a son by creation as were the angels. That rule rules out what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Nor a son by adoption as is the forgiven sinner. That rules out he became a son when he came to this earth and was put under probation but a son begotten in the express image of the father's person and in all the brightness of his majesty and glory, one equal with God, not in age, one equal with God in authority, dignity, and divine perfection. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So friends, he's the monogeneous, the only genetic son. Some people will say, well, he became the son of God when he took on humanity. Well, we've got a slight problem there because uh, if he took on the being the son of God when he took on humanity, then he would have taken the brightness of the father's glory when he took on, when he became, when he was born on earth, on his birth on earth. Now, if he had all the brightness of his, brightness of his father's glory when he came to the earth, friends, we wouldn't be here we would be destroyed. So she's clearly saying that John 3.16, referring to Jesus being the begotten Son of God, the monogeneous, the only genetic Son of God, was not when he came to this earth, but was when he was in heaven that he was the Son of God. So let's look at uh, the, the Holy Spirit and the who aspect really quickly. A review and Herald, August uh, 26, 1890, paragraph 10. The reason why the churches are weak and sickly and ready to die is that the enemy has brought influences of a discouraging nature to bear upon trembling souls. He has sought to shut Jesus from their view as the comforter, as one who reproves, who warns, who admonishes them, saying, this is the way, 
walk ye in it. Now I want you to notice that Jesus is not a comforter. He is the comforter. The Father is known as a comforter, but Jesus is the comforter as referring to John 14. He is that comforter. Now, again, I just want to say this, again, this isn't a full expose. If you want greater detail, I, I go into these verses and or these statements and John 14 um, in The Comforter. So if you want to go uh, look at YouTube, you can find that there. In 14 Manuscript Release 23.3, Cumbered with Humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. Therefore, it was altogether for their advantage that he should leave them to go to his Christ's Father and send the Holy Spirit to be Christ's successor on earth. The Holy Spirit is himself divested. So who is himself? All the personal pronouns are referring back to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is Jesus himself divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. So Jesus is the Holy Spirit in that Jesus, who now is has humanity, but he is able to divest, to take that vest off, that human vest off, so that he may... Um, be the Holy Spirit. That's why she says in the very next sentence, he would represent himself, Jesus, would represent himself as present in all places by his Holy Spirit as the omnipresence. But the Comforter, she says, she goes on, which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name, he shall, although unseen by you, teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So who is John chapters 14 and 16 talking about? It's, well, it's talking about the comforter. And who is the comforter? It's Jesus. It's, it's Jesus divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. And that, that verse is very, that, 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 um, statement is very, very, very explicit and very simple, very clear. And so the witness number two is telling us that uh, the comforter in John 14, it's Jesus. So let's look at the what aspect really quick. And I just have this one statement. There's so many that can be brought in. Uh, Acts of the Apostles 37.3, during the patriarchal age, the influence of the Holy Spirit had often been revealed in a marked manner, but never in its fullness. Now, in obedience to the word of the Savior, the disciples offered their supplication for this gift. And in heaven, Christ added his intercession. He claimed the gift of the Holy Spirit that he might pour it upon his people. So the Holy Spirit can be a who and a what, an it and a he at the same time. Again, I go into greater detail in the comforter in joining the who and the what aspects of the Holy Spirit. The pioneer Advent movement now. Let's let's take a look at this. Now, witness number one and witness number two don't speak against a triunity, not directly. Uh, neither one of them use the word trinity. Uh, obviously, neither one use it as a, as a positive, but neither one actually speak against the trinity using that word either. Although, I do highly recommend that you look at the Alpha and the Omega, and I'll, I'll kind of touch on that here in just a moment. Um, but I will tell you that witness number three strongly, boldly, maybe a bit vehemently speak against the Trinity doctrines. So 
Let's take a look at Ellen White's husband and what he has to say really quickly. He says, as fundamental errors we might class with this counterfeit Sabbath, other errors which Protestants have brought away from the Catholic Church, such as sprinkling for baptism, the Trinity, the consciousness of the dead, and eternal life and misery. The mass who have held these fundamental errors have doubtless done it ignorantly. But can it be supposed that the Church of Christ will carry along with her these errors till the judgment seems burst upon the world? We think not. This comes from September 12, 1854, the Review and Herald, Volume 6, Number 5, page 36, paragraph 8. And that's a mouthful. <laughs> so let's look at another statement he says from uh, the Review and Herald, December 11, 1855, Volume 7, Number 11, page 85, paragraph 16. And if you want to get all that, you may want, you may want to pause this. <laughs> He says, here we might mention the Trinity, which does away with the personality of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is where I want to mention really quickly the Omega of Deadly Heresies. Uh, according to the second witness, she specifically mentions the personality of God and of Jesus Christ. Um, and But she doesn't say use the word Trinity in connection. But when you look at the pioneers, they regularly use the word Trinity in connection with the personality of God and his son, Jesus Christ. So though she may not have used the word in connection, um, you can see that in the context of the pioneers, she's saying the same thing. Why? Because Kellogg took on the Trinity doctrine and he believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So again, I'm not going to go into detail on that here now. Let's look at one more statement by James White. February 7, 1856, Review and Herald, Volume 7, Number 19, page 148, paragraph 26. He says, The greatest fault we can find in the Reformation is the Reformers stopped reforming. Had they gone on and onward till they had left the last vestige of papacy behind, such as natural immortality, sprinkling, the Trinity, and Sunday keeping, the church would now be free from her unscriptural errors. Powerful. So now let's look at uh, J.N. Loughborough. J.N. Loughborough, Ellen White's pastor, if you will. J.N. Loughborough. So a question was put to him. What serious objection is there to the doctrine of the Trinity? And he answers, There are many objections which we might urge, but on account of our limited space, we shall reduce them to the three following. Number one, it is contrary to common sense. I want to stop there for just a moment. One plus one plus one does not equal one, friends. That is common, contrary to common sense. Now, a lot of people today have tried to alter that and twist that by saying, well, one times one times one times one equals one. Yes, but you don't multiply individuals. Uh, you don't say this person times this person times this person equals one. That, that's con that still is contrary to common sense. You add people. You, you, you don't multiply them. He goes on with point number two. It is contrary to scripture. And he is dead on. It is contrary to scripture. And point number three, he says, it is its origin is pagan and fabulous. This comes from November 5, 1861, Review and Herald, Volume 18, page 184, paragraph 1. Friends, fabulous there is not wonderful. Fabulous has the foundation of fable. 
It is a fable. It is fabulous. So it is pagan, and its origin is pagan and of fables. So friends, uh, why is this important? Because there is going to be a shaking. Now, we've already been through uh, many, many shakings, and most people have been shaken out of the truth. And we're going to read a statement showing the shaking here in just a moment. But friends, most people have already been shaken out of the truth. There is not very many left, as we've seen, by the, that have accepted the three witnesses. Why have they rejected the three witnesses? Because they don't like what the three witnesses have to say. And so when you accept all three witnesses, you realize who has been and who has not been shaken out of the truth. But friends, if we think we've been through a shaking and that our numbers are small right now, we haven't seen anything yet. We have still got major shakings to come. And friends, we need all three witnesses. Corporate Adventism has given up the first witness already. They have given up the King James. They have given up the Textus Receptus and brought on the NIV, or as I call it, the NIC, the New International Commentary. It's not a Bible, it's a commentary. They have brought that on and they've given up the first witness already. They have given up the third witness also. Um, in uh, Seventh-day Adventist Handbook of Theology, book, which is book number 12 of the commentary, on page, I believe it's 148, they say not, not should, uh, there should not be much made of this erroneous, their erroneous theology or this erroneous idea referring to the pioneers. They're, they're calling them erroneous. And specifically on the Godhead is what they're referring to. Um, so corporate Adventism has already given up the first witness and the third witness. And it's not going to be long before they give up the second witness. And realistically, most of them have already have given up the second witness. Uh, and I, I'm not going to go into detail on those things, but friends, expect a greater shaking yet on the second witness to come forward. That's my that's what I expect. I don't have anything to back it up. That's just my my thought process. That's just what I see coming. But. Uh, Ezekiel 38:19 says, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Friends, God here is telling us that there is going to be a great shaking. In my jealousy, says God, and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. God is angry. God is upset because his witnesses have been rejected. The truth that they proclaim has been rejected and trampled upon. And brothers and sisters, the shaking is not arbitrary. The reason God allows heresies to come in is to drive us back to the word of God, to drive us to seek to study, to whittle out those who refuse to study and who simply want the traditions of men from those who are willing to dive deep into the word of God and study in depth and find out what God has to say. It differentiates those between those that just want to hold on to Christ and take his name uh, versus those who actually want his garment and want his bread. It's to distinguish between those who just want uh, they don't want the truth. They just want the tradition. 
and it distinguishes those those that want that want the tradition versus those that have a love of the truth. That is the purpose of the shakings. It's to reveal who God's true people are. Testimonies to ministers one twelve point one. God's Spirit has illuminated every page of Holy Writ, but there are those upon whom it makes little impression because it is imperfectly understood. When the shaking comes by the introduction of false theories, these surface readers anchored nowhere are like shifting sand. What is the shaking? There's many aspects of the shaking. It's the straight testimony, uh, but they all tie into the same thing, friends. The shaking is the introduction of false theories or the straight testimony against the false theories. You can look at it the same way. It's saying the same thing. It's saying the same thing. The shaking, those who have been shaken out are those that have accepted false theories, false theology, so friends, were, were the pioneers shaken out of the truth? Because they have a different theology than corporate Adventism. No, they were the remnants. They were the Philadelphian church. They were told to hold fast that which thou hast. They were told to prophesy again, to speak inspired utterances. They are said to have spoken, moved. They were men moved by the Spirit of God. They spoke under the influence of the Spirit of God. Were they shaken out? I think not. Brothers and sisters, corporate Adventism today is the one that has been shaken out because they are the ones that have uh, accepted false theories. There are very few left that have not been shaken out because of the false theories, the introduction of false theories. Friends, Corporate Adventism, again, has, has denied the first witness by taking the NIC, the not inspired commentary, and they have denied the third witness by saying they were in error. Uh, I've heard them say they were ignorant farmers. That, that just gets the hair on the back of my neck going, that they know nothing about these people. Nothing about them. Anybody who says that, and they're going against what Jesus himself said. Friends, they have really already rejected the writings of Ellen White as well. Uh, but again, I expect to see a greater shaking in that area as well. How many religions claim the Bible? Thousands. How many religions claim the King James? Well, now we've narrowed it down to, to hundreds but that's still a lot. How many religions claim the writings of Ellen White? Now, the second witness, now we've narrowed it down to uh, maybe a dozen or so. But how many claim the pioneers? Really only one, and that's the pioneer Seventh-day Adventists. The more witnesses we add, the harder it is to twist the truth. And the more people get whittled out of uh, being on the platform of truth. The more you add these three witnesses, the more witnesses you add in, the more sure 
you are and you can be of the firm foundation that God has given us. And when you have all three witnesses, you see very, very clearly what that foundation is, brothers and sisters. This is why corporate Adventism has rejected the first witness. This is why corporate Adventism has rejected the third witness. And this is why corporate Adventism has rejected a very large percentage of the second witness by saying she changed her mind. That is a rejection of the second witness. Why? Because they are found not standing on the platform that all three witnesses are pointing to. Brothers and sisters, they have to get rid of those three witnesses because those three witnesses are crying out. You are not standing on the platform. Or are they crying out that you are on the platform? Brothers and sisters, I hope that you hear all three witnesses crying out to you that you are standing on that platform of truth. When you add all three witnesses in, you end up with a very small remnant that have not been shaken out of the truth. In this picture, what we see are um, log, like square logs. If you've ever seen you know, a square log house, that's what these are. They're, they're like they're plastic square logs. And I set them up on a table to uh, illustrate and, and take some pictures to illustrate the point of why it is stronger to have a, a three witnesses as opposed to just one. Now, if you look at this picture, uh, when we understand systematic theology, if you look at this picture, I would say that the, the red log, which is the, on the bottom, everything else is founded upon, is who God is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having a right understanding of this. And this is why Catholicism says that all of their understanding, all of their doctrines are based upon the Trinity doctrine. The same thing goes for us. All of our understanding is to be based upon who God is. And then right above that, is uh, the blue log would be having a right understanding of what sin is. And so on and so forth, building up and up and up until we get to that small white block, which is the pinnacle of all of these doctrines, which is righteousness by faith, which is the one doctrine that uh, was left to be uh, understood and grasped corporately by Adventism before Jesus came. And unfortunately, corporate Adventism uh, walked away from that doctrine or, or rejected that doctrine and has start, started backsliding rather quickly from there. But... When all we have is the one witness, friends, it is easy to knock that whole system down with a slight little shake of the table. Just a little shake of the table. And we see that there have been shakings on all three witnesses. Uh, the first witness, we see Westcott and Hort shook the first witness. Uh, the second witness... Um, the writings of Ellen White, they say, well, she was non-Trinitarian, but she changed her mind. Friends, that is a, a denial of the second witness. And the third witness, the pioneers were, were in error, they say. They were ignorant farmers, they say. Well, friends, if you were just to take any one of those witnesses by themselves, anything could shake the, the, the table, if you will, and have these witnesses uh, come crashing down relatively easy. But friends, when you take all three witnesses and you look at what 
the first witness, the second witness, and the third witness all have to say about who God is, you form a very solid foundation. And when you take the first witness, the second witness, and the third witness, and you put them all together and you find out what it has to say on what sin is, you find that you have a very solid foundation to build upon. You keep building upon that until you come to a tower very similar in the side view to uh, the pyramids. Friends, the, the pyramids are still standing today for a reason, and they will stand long after the high rises have collapsed. Why? Because they are built solidly. Most of them are built three-sided, uh, but there are three-sided and four-sided pyramids. But you look at those three-sided pyramids and, and the four-sided also, but you look at those pyramids and how they are built, you could shake that ground really hard and those pyramids are going to still stay standing there. Why? Because of the way they're built. And that is exactly what God wants us to do with the platform of truth. He wants to have, He wants us to have the first witness, the second witness, and that third witness, all three interlinked and locking together and building upon that platform of truth until we come to the pinnacle of truth, which is righteousness by faith. And friends, when we put all of that together, we will have a true and true and righteous understanding of righteousness by faith. And that is what God wants. Friends, I hope and pray that you will stand on that platform of truth, that you will accept all three of these witnesses and that you won't just accept them, friends, but that you will look at them, that you will study them because we need all three witnesses for the time of trouble, the time of shaking that is going to come upon us, the introduction of false theories, that we may be able to stand firm upon the platform of truth, that no matter how hard the devil shakes, this platform will stand. And the three witnesses, all three, point us to the same platform. So friends, I want to call you to a decision I want to ask that you will make the commitment to God now, that you will accept all three witnesses. He gave them for a reason, not just because he wanted to give them. He gave them for a reason. And if you're willing to accept all three, friends, I pray that you will kneel with me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come boldly before your throne of grace because of what Jesus has done and because all three witnesses tell us that we can come boldly before your throne of grace in the name, the character, the authority of your Son. So, Father, we do. We come boldly before your throne of grace, but we come with humility at the same time. Father, we pray that you will pour out your Spirit upon us that as we go through and we search all three witnesses, that we will be settled firmly upon the foundation of truth that you gave in your wisdom, not in your error, that is unquestionable. And so, Father, I pray that you will lead us and guide us in that as we search all three witnesses. And, Father, I pray for those 
that have been shaken out. I pray for those, Father, that do not understand the three witnesses, that reject the three witnesses because they point to the platform of truth. Father, I pray for those. I pray that you will not just give up on them. I pray that you will not give up on me, that you will continue to guide us and lead us into truth, a deeper understanding of that which has already been given, that truth that goes all the way to the second coming of Christ, that we may see it deeper and that it will not just be a head knowledge, but that it will be a knowledge that changes us into the image of Christ, that it will be a heart knowledge. Father Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts. May we let him come in. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth.